Welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films and sometimes the TV shows of Jane Campion. I'm Ingo King, a critic at the Washington Post, and with me is my co-host Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Hey, Ingo. Last time, we dove into the first season of Top of the Lake. In this episode, we're going to do things a little differently. We are going to discuss Top of the Lake's second season, subtitled Ugh, China Girl, which aired in the U.S. on the Sundance Channel in 2017, as well as The Portrait of a Lady, which came out in 1996. Both feature Nicole Kidman, a longtime friend of Campion's, whose relationship with the director goes back several decades. In 1981, as a film student, Campion saw a teenage Kidman in a play in Sydney and wanted to cast her immediately in her graduation film, although that did not end up happening. Wow. Yeah. We'll discuss Top of the Lake's second season in the first half of this episode and The Portrait of a Lady in the second half. Other than the Kidman connection, we group these two works together because they happen to be two of Campion's least critically successful works. Unlike In the Cut, which has now become something of a cult hit rediscovered by newer generations, hardly anyone is out to defend Top of the Lake China Girl or The Portrait of a Lady, except maybe us. We shall see. We describe this podcast as an introduction to loving the works of the auteur of the season, but if you have listened to our podcast in the past, you know that our version of love requires honesty. We have love? <laughs> season two of Top of the Lake follows Elizabeth Moss's Robin back to Sydney, where she has rejoined the police department there. A dead Thai sex worker whose body is packed into a suitcase, thrown into the ocean, and ends up on shore somehow leads Robin back to Mary, the biological daughter she had given up for adoption after her gang rape in New Zealand. Campion has described the season as quote-unquote ovarian, and fittingly, Mary is played by the director's own daughter, Alice Englert. Gwendolyn Christie also co-stars as Robin's goofy and seemingly inept partner, Miranda. The second season was written once again by Campion and Gerard Lee, but she only directs two of the six episodes. The others are helmed by Arielle Kleiman. Whereas the first season was nominated for a handful of Emmys, the accolades for China Girl were rightly few and far between. We discussed before how season one was an interesting mess. Season two, I think it's fair to say, is an uninteresting mess. So what went wrong? The series opens on two people throwing a suitcase over a cliff, uh, which we learn later contains a young woman's dead body. So unlike last season, we already know who's guilty of whatever crime has been committed. Robin is back working in Sydney, but clearly still has trauma from her experience five years earlier. Meanwhile, we meet Mary, played by Alice Englert, a willful 17-year-old who is dating Alexander, a.k.a. Puss, played by David Densick, a lecherous 42-year-old German man who lives above a brothel and claims to be a former professor. Mary, the baby Robin gave up 
when she was a teenager, has a tense relationship with her adoptive parents, Pike Edwards, played by Ewan Leslie, and Julia Edwards, played by Nicole Kidman, who have recently split up as Julia has started a relationship with a woman. We also meet a university student who is in love with Cinnamon, who is the woman in the suitcase who worked at the brothel, and he is distraught to learn that she is dead. As the show unfolds, we discover that the brothel Puss's running is also an illegal surrogacy ring. It turns out Miranda is one of the women paying for such a surrogate. At some point, Al Parker from the first season appears because he's suing Robin for paralyzing him, and he tries to strangle her in the police station. As things escalate between Puss and Mary's parents, Robin reconnects with Mary and becomes intimate with Mary's dad. Eventually, the angry student shows up at the brothel trying to kill Puss and then takes Mary hostage before fleeing. Robin and Miranda find him hiding on a beach in plain sight, and Miranda gets shot in the stomach before Robin can stop him, putting her in a coma. As the series ends, we see Puss and the pregnant sex workers boarding a plane out of the country, and the couples who'd paid these surrogates watching a cruel, poorly made film where Puss explains just what he's done. The families are heartbroken. It's a very Tommy Wiseau moment. Mary returns home. Robin drops by to check in on things, and Julia informs her that she and Pike are going to give it another go. And Robin goes back to her bleak, empty apartment to watch a home movie of a very young Mary dancing around on her laptop screen. And that's all we have to say about Top of the Lake China Girl. (laughs) So this is how Campion herself described the season. I wanted to go deep into the uterus of a woman and really tell the story from that point of view, from creation to appropriation. It was always in my mind that the ocean is the major uterus of the whole thing. It's a feminine space. It's controlled by the moon and the tides. And I love all that. I don't know how much it's affected how the story communicates to people, but it's there in my heart. And I read this and I thought, first of all, this is some essentialist shit. And second of all, I bet Daniel would have a fantastic time rolling his eyes at this while he, on, like, in his other, while in every other part of his life, is, like, ranting and raving about astrology. Fuck you. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, that's some nonsense. And I love that Jane thought that way. But, like, if that had come across, maybe we would have loved this season. But you know what didn't come across? That. So I don't know if you got this. I reviewed Top of the Lake China Girl, you know, like four years ago. Completely forgot everything about it. Including the fact that uh, in the opposite of the U.S., uh, where prostitution is mostly illegal and surrogacy is legal. In Australia, prostitution is legal and surrogacy is illegal. Which I think I was sort of like missing that particular bit of context, uh, which helps sort of contextualize this a little bit. Yeah, I didn't understand that either until like someone says something to the extent of that it is illegal. But that's not until they even like go to one of the fertility clinics and so it's kind of confusing what's like i would assume that an australian audience would have more of an understanding of what this was what was happening before we did but yeah i think that this whole series is really obsessed with pregnancy motherhood childbearing i mean i think the first one was not as much and this one 
There's so many like really interesting ideas that are happening here. And I think that that is sort of like the gist of like, that is sort of like the fuel that like gets the season going. But I think it just kind of like sputters out at some point. Number one, because the mystery is really boring. And number two, uh, the second half, these like other part of all of this, which is like Robin's rediscovery of her knitwit daughter, is also really uninteresting. And I could never have imagined like watching a 42 year old man groom a 17 year old girl in order to make her into a sex worker be so boring and so unsympathetic but that is what we have here i certainly agree i only wanted the worst for mary she was such a nightmare (laughs) character it was so frustrating to watch her like she wasn't making interesting choices necessarily she was just making rebellious choices because she was trying to like act out with her parents as we talked about while we watched this like she's clearly just trying to act out getting to get attention from her parents because she wants the structure that they're not giving her so she's seeking it from this like 42 year old man who will kind of tell her what to do but also like they were always seemed like they were a little too scared to ever tell her what to do because they felt guilty that they weren't her parents but like that's way too much analysis that I'm giving this show because like it doesn't deserve that much because it's really just a whole boring stretch of like, well, one side we have the crime going on and the other side we have Mary going on and both of them felt like a burden. Yes. I think the really like interesting thing that Campion is trying to do here is to connect uh, the sex workers. Basically, like she's exploring the exploitation of brown women's bodies here, right? There's this like really big, uh, I think we're given to understand this like really big population of women from Southeast Asia, which is like not too far from Australia, who are working in Australia as sex workers and like the exploitation of their bodies is connected to like the exploitation of surrogacy, I suppose. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I have never seen that play out anywhere else. And yet it just like is so uninteresting. Uh, In addition to sort of like the racist, the racial lens, there's obviously like a class element here. And I think there is a sort of thing of like, well, uh, in the same way that like prostitution always might have existed, uh, whether we legalize it or not, there is sort of this like similar thing play out where uh, because now surrogacy is a scientific possibility, whether it is legal or not, people are going to pursue it even if they are sort of debasing themselves like in the process. Like, I understand all of this. Like, and, you know, like on an intellectual level, it's a very interesting leap. And yet the way that it plays out is so uninteresting. I think mostly because so much of the focus of the season is about Mary and sort of like the, um, like the stakes of it is sort of like about like the intactness of like the like upper middle class white family. And there is not like a single 
Asian character, even though there is like all of this like hand wringing about like what white Australians are doing to Asian women. Where there's like not like a single like Asian character that like feels real that has like any sort of like individuality. Um, I think one of like the ongoing dynamics of this season is that Mary is like the one special like white girl who sort of decides that like she can see through pus and all of the brown women sort of like go along with him and consider him some sort of like charismatic leader which I did not believe for one tiny second. These are women who have traveled really far from home and put themselves into like a certain economic arrangement um And if those are not going to be, like, the most cynical women in the world, I don't know who would be. I do not believe that they have, like, less savvy or, like, less, like, wisdom of how the world works than, like, a 17-year-old white girl who grew up in the wealthy suburbs. Like, yeah. I think that, like, the season is really, like, we care about, like these like extremely abject Asian women and yet there is no evidence that like there is no like sense of personhood that is like endowed to those and yet group of I only know how to write white people I mean basically I think that like you spend much more time like thinking about you like the general audience like member spend a lot more time thinking about like Nicole Kidman's like freckles and like wig than you really do about like any of the Asian women like as a singular character oh yeah I think that they are all a character together as women in the brothel and that is just like the catch-all for all of them uh and I mean, also, I wanted to say, speaking of that class issue, it's interesting that, like, all of these families, well, all these couples that are trying to uh, have uh, these illegal families are have convinced themselves that these women are all students. Yes. And that, like, even Miranda, who is a cop, who is ex- who is investigating this crime and is finding this illegal surrogacy ring, is convinced that, like, oh, well, not my surrogate. Yes. It's very hashtag not my surrogate. Yes, that's the name of the episode. <laughs> hashtag not my surrogate. And that like, it's almost like they have no concept of the amount of exploitation that they are actually like engaging in. Yeah. And that like, they think of it as like these women doing this altruistic act when really like, no, they have been trafficked into this basically. And you are a party to that. And, like, there's never any thought given to the women that are forced to be pregnant. I mean, are they, though? Are they, like... I would guess that... I don't know if they're really trafficked in, like, the classic sense of the word. If if prostitution is legal and these women are coming through student visas, I think it's possible that... Uh, they can do whatever the fuck they want with like their student visas. On the other hand, uh, we get a... I don't know. Puss is actually loading them on a plane while they're pregnant and taking them out of the country. So he is trafficking the at least the babies that are inside of their wombs. On the other hand, we are told at some point that like any uh, woman who sort of like works at the brothel has to 
like basically like the entrance fee for like working there is thirty thousand Australian dollars, which, which like the incel character who, I guess he's not really an incel, which like the hooker raider character. I mean, he's not an incel because brothels are le- because prostitution is legal. If he were in yes. America, he would be an incel. Yes. Which the hooker reader character says would be like three hundred guys or like three hundred jobs or whatever, and so I think it's a little murky, like the extent to which these women are trafficked. But I think that is like another one of these things where the ambiguity is not productive here. It just feels more like carelessness. Yeah, because she was more interested in telling the story of Robin and Robin's like journey than she was actually telling the story about the people who were most affected by this crime. Yes. Um, one thing I will say is about Robin's whole plight is that, unfortunately, Al, the guy who was like running the pedophile ring in season one, comes back, and I just did not care about any of that stuff, and it took up so much of the season, and I was like, why? Like, oh, I'm yeah. over this. I didn't need anything from season one except her just feeling bad. Like... I don't need Al coming back and trying to strangle her, even though the fight scene between him and her with him in a wheelchair and her lighting the curtains on fire and stuff was fun in a way. Like, it was exciting to watch. It was stimulating. Yes, but, like, it just felt like pointless filler. And I think that same with, like, the flashback to Robin and Jono's almost wedding where Jono's arrested with a girl on their wedding day and we see like her burning her wedding dress afterward and like we don't need any of that it's not like none of this is informative except to like tell us why Robin is sad but you know what we already knew Robin is sad (laughs) I actually got the sense that like Robin is in such a black pit in this whole season that I find that I found it like really hard to relate to any of her emotions. I think with season one, uh, because she's so like driven working on this case and because it brings up all of this like old stuff in her, I think that like even though the character is going through really awful stuff, you're sort of like, okay, like I understand where you're coming from. And with this, I think they sort of like overloaded her with so many tragedies that I was like, okay, I completely understand why you are a terrifying mess who, like, everyone in the police department hates. But also, I cannot relate to any of your emotions right now. Everybody in the police department hates, but also wants to fuck. Yes. Uh, which, like, I also didn't need any of that. Like, it just added very little. I didn't I either, think- though I did find the cop with the mustache really hot. You're alone there. I know. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's, it was like, almost like watching like The Handmaid's Tale, like season like three asterisk or something. It just like got to such an abject level. Except it was so much more pro-life. Yeah, there's a whole like storyline where I guess like Robin, who like in season one had basically had like no connection to her biological daughter now decides like actually I am her mom after meeting her like biological daughter and then her and Nicole Kidman's Julia sort of have this like tug of war over Mary and I also just like did not care about any of that stuff also like but once you've met her it's like a tug of war over her her (laughs) so yeah I just 
there was just like nothing here that like felt really interesting. I think that like the stuff with Robin's history and the stuff with the case, like it just like relied on too much coincidence to like really like ring true. I think that even though it was supposed to feel like Jane Campion really wanted to get into this like idea of like Asian sex work in Sydney like it wasn't actually interesting it didn't really like humanize any of the Asian sex workers which I was like well then literally like what's the point um and then you just have these like random connections that just like go nowhere there's like a whole storyline where like Puss's whole like motivation as a character seems to be that he is a product of a rape like Mary and Puss is a bastard and like him sort of like kidnapping all of the babies at the end these like desired babies uh who are born with the money of upper class white people is that like he is like the child of like a raped servant woman and so he was like ah ha ha here's like my revenge and I was just like okay like am I supposed to care yeah uh no I don't know how we're supposed to care because like I mean I don't know there's obviously no way to find him sympathetic but also like I never even knew if I could believe that story he told because it sounds so like fanciful and ridiculous like that, Anna like, Paquin's story exactly that it's like he's concocted this history for himself as opposed to like what actually happened which is probably much more banal and uh would make him uninteresting but like i also don't understand what kind of sway he held over mary because like he's not alluring he's not attractive he's not interesting he's i believe i said this while we watched the show yesterday he's basically like an alt-left podcaster Yes, he is a misogynist who claims to be a feminist. So exactly. in that tracks. I I mean like here's like another thing where like it's sort of like interesting in theory where he really is good at like speaking the language of solidarity, of female solidarity and of female empowerment. And I think there's this like thing here that feels very relevant for twenty seventeen, which is how easy it is to co opt like the language of feminism for like extremely misogynistic purposes um and that's like another zone in which i'm like yeah that's like a really interesting concept like i wish you would do something more with it and it just never really happened yeah it seemed like honestly this whole season was a lot of like false starts and paths that didn't really go anywhere and just kind of like a collection of things that happened and uh, the only things that really, like, connected were a little too coincidental to, like, feel even story-driven. Yeah. I think something that we talked about is how, I mean, like, so much of, like, season one was about how inept and indifferent the police was. But here, I think most of the detective work, honestly, is done by the guy, but done by the college student, John. And so I'm like, well, I mean, I understand that like Robin is spiraling and Miranda is like way too caught up in all of her surrogacy drama to actually work on the case. And also she's not very good at her job, but like none of the cops are good at their jobs. And so I was like, what are they actually solving? Because they are solving nothing. 
you get like one version of what happened to Cinnamon, the woman in the suitcase. I think we find out at some point that like her real name was Padma. Although, you know, all of this information comes from Puss. And so like, are you actually supposed to trust anything that he says about like the illegal surrogacy ring that he was in? Like, who knows? And I think you know, like, on the one hand, you can say, like, well, like, we should embrace ambiguity and blah, 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 blah. But I also feel like it speaks to, like, the lack of stakes and, like, the lack of, like, care that Campion and Lee have for, like, their whole, like, Asian side of, like, their scripts. And so it just, like, leaves it just feels even more like they don't actually care about these characters, except as inciting events for Robin's pain. One thing I will say is that uh, in the sort of like press tour that Jane Campion did for like before the season came out, she talked a lot about how she wanted to go interview people who work in brothels. And she apparently got like notes uh, about, like, the brothel scenes from sex workers themselves. Um, I don't think that she talked, like, at length about what she actually ended up changing or anything like that. I think one thing that she learned was that there actually isn't, like, a huge amount of, like, forced trafficking. And, like, that was interesting to her. But that was, like, the only thing that I saw. Um, I mean, that makes sense, honestly. Yeah, and she was like, I really want to get into, like, the combination of racism and misogyny. Well, then why didn't she? Yeah, I, you know, (laughs) that's a good point. Yeah, I just feel like this whole season is a season of missed opportunities in so many ways. Like, it's a beautiful season for some of the camera work, but as I think you said during one particular shot, like, this show isn't interesting enough for that beautiful of a shot. (laughs) And like, that's kind of the whole vibe of the season in that, like it doesn't seem to have any of even like the same, I hate, I hate to say this, but like magic of the first season, it doesn't have any of the same like weirdness to it in the way that like the women in paradise in the first season kind of existed in this like alternate world space kind of thing. I mean, I think you get that a little bit with this sort of, like, overarching thing that she's trying to do, which is that she wants to talk about how motherhood and maternal love will make you do some crazy-ass shit, like take your egg and your husband's sperm and, like, mix it together and put it into the bodies of, a, of strangers. I think the sense of, like, that desperation... I, and, like, the intensity of feeling that will make you do all of this stuff that, like, you never thought you would do. These, like, very middle-class people going outside of the law in order and spending tens of thousands of dollars to make this happen. I think that's really interesting. One of these surrogacy couples is sort of, like, with a woman who appears to be very, like, emotionally fragile and she has this like very overbearing husband who tells Robin at some point like you know having a baby is going to fix her and I again this is like one of those things where I'm just like that's such an interesting concept like do more (laughs) yeah 
I totally agree. I think honestly, one of the for me, one of the most affecting scenes of the whole season was when Robin was sitting having that conversation with the fertility doctor, and he pulls out the dice, and he's just like, "You got a one in twenty chance at your age. Pick a number," and they start rolling it but you changed your number. And it's like a really sad scene of like, it really is this difficult to have kids this late. And so like, as you said, I would much rather, like there are so many interesting things about like the fertility story of like people desperate to get pregnant that like is yet another thing she's uninterested in getting into because she wanted to spend more time making her kid do weird stuff on screen. Yes. Let me read you a classic Campion quote. Love it. (laughs) Another thing that I found really interesting that I think maybe is a little bit harder to get, but like maybe not. I think it depends a lot on where in the U.S. you live. Um, She says the idealization of the Asian girl is so big in the Australian male psyche. It's such a myth. So unreal. They're top ladies. Not so submissive. Yeah, I've watched Holy Smoke. (laughs) In a different uh, interview, she said, they think Asian women are more petite, more beautiful, more feminine than us big white women. Ooh, Jane. (laughs) I mean, we talked a lot when we were talking about, like, the piano, about sort of, like, this, like, distinction between, like, a special, like, white lady and then all of these, like, other women of color. And I feel like there's a little bit of, like, that particular dynamic with the season. Oh, definitely. Um, and the white lady that I actually wanted to talk about next was uh, Nicole Kidman, who we haven't talked about enough, but also like is kind of as present as GJ was in the last season, which is not at all ever. And she's just kind of like there to wear a wig every few s- scenes. Yes. I read a description that Campion had of Nicole Kidman's character, which I found strange. She said of Kidman, she's an unafraid to play this ridiculous woman. Sort of bossy, dominating, entitled. You know, an old-fashioned glamour pot feminist with a fire in her eye. And I just thought, I don't know if any of that was really supposed to come through. It, it didn't. I felt like Nicole Kidman was doing a Jane Campion impression the whole time. I wondered about that, although I don't think that that is what was happening. Um, apparently we, you and I talked a lot about those distracting freckles that Kidman wears in this. And of course Mm -hmm. she has a wig. Did you also know that she had fake teeth and a bump on her nose? I didn't know about the bump though. I mean, she loves nose work. Look at the hours. (laughs) Um, but I did know about the gap in the teeth because I had read some uh, interview in Vulture where, like, the first sketch of the character, the makeup artist had, like, put, te- like, a gap tooth in there. And Nicole was just like, yes, that's great. It was nice to hear Nicole's Australian accent and not hear her try to do an accent. Her American accent, which is Any not accent, great. any accent at all. <laughs> what do you mean? She has such a stellar Russian accent. You're so right. What was it? Sorry. Excuse me. I just, like, don't understand what the point of casting Nicole Kidman in this was. Because, like, she's not very present. She doesn't do a lot. She is kind of in the same way that Holly Hunter is just kind of there, but in a way that's, like, not useful or satisfying. 
Yeah, I, I, I just don't know like what Nicole Kidman was there for. And I think GJ at least added a lot of like atmosphere and a lot of like tension. And there just like really wasn't anything here. And one of the things that we learned by the end is that Mary's father, Pike, decides who was going to divorce Julia Kidman's character, uh, decides that he's actually going to go back and stay together, sort of like thus excluding Robin from like the family that without her would not have existed. And yet at the same time, I just like never knew that that was supposed to be something that we were supposed to care about. Or, yeah, or hope for. Yes. And so I was like, okay, like, that's nice, but, like, why am I supposed to care? And I just feel like I had that sense at so many junctures watching this season. So did we like anything about (laughs) China Girl? I will say I did like one thing, uh, which was as a woman who is of average height, but is often thought of as a short person, I am always paying attention to height, especially in movies. And I did love the height differential between Elizabeth Moss and Gwendolyn Christie. I think they have about like a foot uh, indifference. And Campion really makes like full use of that. Oh, yeah, that was great. And actually, I think like playing off of that, my favorite scene in the entire series in the entire second season i think really has to do with their height differential in that like they're at the beach and uh gwendolyn christie hops down off of like the off of like a ledge it's probably like three feet tall um onto the beach and then turns around and holds her arms up offering to catch robin (laughs) as she jumps down and it's just and it's just like such a perfect image. Like Elizabeth image. Moss is a child. Exactly. It's so comedic and so, but it's also like so innocent. Like yeah. Gwendolyn Christie plays it in such a like sweet, naive way that's just kind of like, aw. So. Aw, you dummy. Exactly. One thing I will say on a final note about the incels or like the hooker readers or whatever is that I did find it really funny that at some point uh, Puss runs into one of them and is like, let me guess, you're majoring in either philosophy or IT. <laughs> so fucking true. You know who majored in philosophy? My little brother. Portrait of a Lady was Campion's follow-up to The Piano, a film whose mega-success heralded the arrival of a new, fresh, and distinctively feminine voice in the world of international art house cinema. You can imagine that, especially after Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin's Oscars for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress for that film, that every female thespian in Hollywood wanted to work with Campion. But the director... Uh, working with screenwriter Laura Jones, shaped her adaptation of Henry James's 1881 novel with only one actress in mind, Nicole Kidman. We talked in our piano episode about Campion's later ambivalence toward Ada's happy ending. Personally, we loved that the film concluded with Ada getting to, in Liz Lemon parlance, have it all. But... Things are happening! (laughs) 
But hindsight made Campion think that she had acquiesced to commercial pressures. In her mind, the story should have ended with Ada's successful suicide attempt. The film's romanticism, uh, she later thought, had fucked up heaps of women. Direct quote. In that sense, the portrait of a lady was a corrective to the piano. Campion was drawn to the Henry James novel because, in her estimation, he tore apart the fairy tale. He's saying, be real. Life is hard. No one's going to get the right person. Very good GJ speak right there. Bummer. If you want to hear a real bummer, uh, The Portrait of a Lady is dedicated to Campion's son Jasper, who was born in 1993 and only lived 12 days. The reception to The Portrait of a Lady was decidedly mixed. It's a sumptuous, big-budget costume drama with some real art school flourishes that Daniel and I actually loved. Did you know Jane Campion went to film school? (laughs) But they were not received well by critics at the time. Campion, our favorite adaptation queen, also made some significant changes to James's novel, in part to make Kidman's Isabel Archer more like herself, which also did not go over very well in the mid-90s when faithful period dramas were all the rage. Kidman, who had starred in Gus Van Sant's To Die For the year before, is terrific here, but nearly all the acting accolades went to her co-stars Barbara Hershey and Martin Donovan, one of whom definitely deserved those accolades, and one of whom I would say did not. In addition to Kidman, who was a big rising star at the time, Anne Hershey and Donovan, this is a stacked cast. It's got John Malkovich, Mary Louise Parker, Shelley Winters, Shelley Duvall, Richard E. Grant, Christian Bale, Viggo Mortensen, a veritable who's who in white Hollywood. The film opens on a voiceover of New Zealand women talking about love and a silent sequence of these women staring into camera over the credits, and then cuts to a close-up of Isabel Archer, played by Nicole Kidman. She is being pursued by a handful of suitors in England while staying with her uncle, but turns them all down. After her uncle dies, she inherits a hefty sum because, unbeknownst to her, her cousin Ralph Touchett, played by Martin Donovan, convinced her uncle to leave her that sum so she could be independent. He is clearly in love with her. Also, he has consumption. Isabel meets Madame Serena, played by Barbara Hershey, and becomes instant friends with her. But once Serena learns of her wealth, she schemes to set her up with Gilbert Osmond, played by John Malkovich, Serena's former lover. Isabel and Gilbert get engaged, and Ralph tries to intervene, warning Isabel that Gilbert isn't the man she wants him to be. Isabel doesn't listen and gets married to him anyway. A year later in Rome, the marriage has gone south, and Gilbert has become very controlling. There's also a side plot with Gilbert's daughter that isn't really relevant, except that we learn his daughter's mother is Serena. When Isabel hears news that Ralph is dying, she tries to leave for England, but Gilbert won't allow it. Serena confesses to Isabel that Ralph convinced his uncle to leave her the money, and so Isabel defies her husband and runs to Ralph's deathbed, confessing her love for him and kisses him before he dies. At his funeral, a former suitor comes on to Isabel, and they kiss before she runs away back to the house, turning at the door and staring back into the garden. So we've talked about, like, the poorly received Campion films before. Holy Smoke and The Cut, uh, definitely Portrait of a Lady. I think that for me, this is closer to a In the Cut than a Holy Smoke, by which I mean I think Holy Smoke is a very good film that just like was too weird for mainstream critics and audiences at the time. 
I think it's closer to and in the cut, by which I mean this is a pretty flawed film that has some real interesting stuff in it. But also, I understand why people didn't cotton to it, and it just like doesn't quite cohere together. Oh yeah, I would totally agree. I think that Holy Smoke is a movie I would like actually recommend people watch. But this is one that I would say like if you're into Campion and want to do a like full Campion, it's watch, for a completist. You should yeah, it's for a completist. And there's some really satisfying stuff in here if you are a completist. But like, I wouldn't have wanted to sit down with this just on a weekend without the rest of her filmography in my head. Yeah, I think Campion does this like really interesting thing where she is like both really drawn to romanticism and she's also really drawn to tearing apart these like really idealized notions of love. So like on the more romantic part, we have the piano and we have Bright Star. And then she has these other films that are basically like, oh, you think you love love? Well, like, love will fuck you up. She does this with In the Cut. She does that with Portrait of a Lady. And she also does that with Power of the Dog, which we will discuss in the next episode. And it's interesting to me that, like, her romantic films are, like, the more successful ones, whereas I think, like, her sort of, like, angrier ones, or her little fair ones... Um, are the ones like until power of the dog that like I think like it's so are so full of feeling but just like don't quite work um, even though I think she feels both of those uh, polarities like very strongly yeah I I would agree with that I think that this like has a stronger emotional through line than it does a narrative one um, but it's like, as you said up at the top, I think she's still, like, working through some of her, like, art school stuff in here. Not in a bad way, but just in a way where she's like, well, I'm going to try some stuff along with the, like, romance that I want to explore. And I honestly enjoyed the art school stuff exploring more than the romance exploring in this at all. I like both of them. Um, I think, like, one of the reviews, apparently, like, one of the contemporary reviews... Uh, that came out were something like, oh, so this is just, like, about, like, a bad marriage. Like, why should I care? But there are, like, a million movies about bad marriages. And, and a million all... bad marriages. <laughs> I think what's, what like, really struck out to me watching this from the vantage point of 2021 was that, I mean, it's essentially about, like, financial abuse. It's about a wealthy woman who is exploited by like a guy who basically takes control of all of her money and then like socially isolates her so that like she is completely under his thumb and she is told like she can't leave the house um some months ago i reviewed the tv show made which is also very much about financial abuse and i was like oh this is like the same thing except one of them happens to a contemporary like working class woman and this is about like a rich woman but i think the other thing i really enjoyed sort of like in the back of my mind um that like the film doesn't quite get into but which i think is like an undeniable undercurrent of the film is which is that you know like all she really wants is independence and then she gets all of this money in order to become this independent woman and it turns out like the money makes her a target and the money is sort of like her downfall and also she's too naive to actually be independent like 
that's part of what's going on here is that like, yes, it would be great if she were this independent worldly woman, but then she like doesn't actually have the, for lack of a better term, street smarts to yeah. like actually hang on to that. And that's why she becomes such an easy mark. I have two thoughts about that. One of which is as good as Nicole Kidman is in this, I think she was slightly miscast because Nicole Kidman in her 2,000, 200,000 roles that she's played on screen always radiates intelligence. And Mm. I didn't quite believe that this version by Nicole Kidman was that dumb to marry, to like fall for such a cheap, schemester like John Malkovich's character. Uh, The other thing is that apparently (laughs) when uh, Campion was living in Europe as a young woman, she had a friend in Italy, I believe, who was arrested for cocaine trafficking and she was completely destabilized by this experience, which anyone would be because she had been, she just had had no idea, but because she had so little idea of like what was actually happening, she was paranoid for a while that she would also be arrested and like her life would also be ruined. And so, <laughs> yeah, street smarts. Kidman also said that basically, like, she thought while playing Isabel Archer, she was basically playing some version of Jane. Um, I think in the book, Isabel's father squanders basically like his entire fortune, which is actually Campion's story because Campion's father married a rich heiress, her mother, and then basically squandered that fortune. Good thing film school was cheap. (laughs) And also, Campion has said that, quote, Isabel fantasizes about men like Osmond, and so do I. I mean, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) mean men i mean that is your type mean white men yeah where yes have we met um (laughs) but also like isn't every protagonist that jane creates a version of herself i mean i think she's someone who definitely likes to put a lot of herself in the movies that she makes Um, We should talk about those film school flourishes, because I think that that was probably the thing that, like, you and I both liked the most. I mean, from the first moment, from the opening of the credits, where it's this voiceover of New Zealand women and... uh, In black and white. In black and white. Well, there's, like, one or two shots of color, but yeah, mostly in black and white, and they're just kind of, like, looking at the screen, and it's all... They're all in modern dress, and it's a, like very contemporary moment before we get taken to the period in a like kind of setting at least I perceive it as like kind of setting the scene of like this is a story that happened but it's also like a thing that people still experience and also like every line that these women are sharing is basically about like their opinions on love and uh, particularly like how it starts out great and then doesn't necessarily stay great and so she's kind of trying to illustrate from the top that like this is a story that continues to happen. Yeah, I'm sorry to bring up Sex and the City once again, but I am mid-rewatch. And uh, there is, like, a scene where Carrie goes on and on about how, like, she's, like, like, this is, like, what's so great about, like, a first kiss or, like, anticipating the first kiss or whatever. And it's basically exactly what these, like, very young women are saying. And the whole idea of, like, 
the kiss being like the best thing and then like the rest of the relationship going sour is such a incredibly depressing idea for me but I think also really gets at this like uh, bluebeard quality that so much of this uh, thing is about and also a folk tale that was referenced in the piano mm-hmm. I think that I would probably describe this movie as like a combination of bluebeard and dangerous liaisons and uh, oh it's very dangerous liaisons forward <laughs> yes and um, Malkovich basically plays exactly the same character that he did in dangerous liaisons and it's still pretty hot ago. uh I will not endorse that statement I will say that Campion apparently offered Malkovich a different role in the movie and I wanted to ask you which role you think that she initially offered Malkovich the dying uncle <laughs> I'm kidding. He's I so ass- old. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I assume that it's uh, the character that Martin Donovan ended up playing, her cousin. Yes. Uh, to touch it, Ralph Touch It. Yes. By the way, the names in this movie are crazy. Did you know that Viggo Mortensen's character, Viggo Morton, also playing a suitor to Isabel, is named Goodwood? Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Uh, my favorite, like, by far art school flourish was the foursome fantasy that we have, like, very early mm. in the movie, where I think, like, basically, like, the first scene, or, like, the second, I think one of the earliest scenes of the movie is where Richard E. Grant uh, proposes marriage to Isabel, and she's like, uh, no, thank you. And then Viggo Mortensen comes over and he's like, will you marry me? And she's like, uh, no, thank you. And like very clearly her cousin is interested in her. Um, I did roll my eyes slightly um, and it sort of like did make me a little bit uh, reluctant to like get fully into the movie because I was like, okay, I get it. Like everyone wants to fuck you. Like what She's so popular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get this, like, really fun sequence where after Viggo Mortensen leaves, like, just after touching her face as he leaves, she sort of, like, touches her own face with her own hand, sort of, like, remembering that touch, and then places, like, her forehead on, like, these, like, beads that are hanging over her bed canopy, and then basically just, like, lies in bed imagining all three men going to town like on her at the same time and sign me up (laughs) and it's just this like beautiful image of like wanton horniness and sort of this like inchoateness and this like desire to have like everything all at once instead of having to settle for just one guy i think uh the scene definitely riled up the James purists out there but I don't care it's one of the best scenes in the entire goddamn movie well it is until it isn't I mean I loved that scene too it was great I love a dream sequence like that uh but then I'm sorry Jane did one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen in a Jane Campion film which is instead of the men just like not being there when she when like Nicole Kidman gets off the bed she watches them all stand up and like 
dissolve into nothingness in this very like 1990s Ghost Rider the TV show style dissolve. It was very, very cheesy. Did you ever watch The Secret World of Alex Mack? Oh, of course. Those were like the same level of special effects there. Yes. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Like, I I just, I would love to ask Jane about that moment because it is literally the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen in a movie of hers. (laughs) Um, we do get one final art school flourish, which is, it's this, uh, black and white sequence. It's sort of like home movies, if home movies existed, like, in the 1870s. Well, Jane loves and, a home movie. <laughs> and, uh, the whole thing is sort of, like, in, like, this, like, very sped up black and white. It's very dreamlike. There is a plate of lima beans at some point, and, like, all <gasps> the lima beans yes. have mouths. And the lima beans keep repeating what uh, John Malkovich's character tells her right before she leaves for Egypt, which is where she's traveling to, uh, where the beans just keep saying, I'm absolutely in love with you. And I think there's also a point at which when she first meets Osmond, Malkovich's character, he holds his daughter just like a little bit too closely. Like he has this hand like very possessively like around her stomach and then she imagines him doing the same thing to her own stomach like in this dream sequence and yeah it just reminded me of like every single like feeling you have as like a teenage girl where like you have like one comment some guy said and then you just like reverberate like around that comment mentally for like a whole like three months that oh, was, I've like, been there. Appealing. I know you've been there. I I absolutely love this scene. Uh, if the sex sexy foursome was your favorite, this one was mine. It was just so peculiar and uh, specific and out of touch with the reality of this world. Uh, that it was exciting, and I loved the mouths of lima beans. It also kind of like reminded me a little bit of talk to her in the uh, like. Charlie Chaplin vaudevillian feeling of the like fast pacedness, but also just like the weirdness of the imagery. It was really cool. And I'm, I wish she had done more of it in like later films. I appreciate the like little flashes that we get of it in her later works, but like, oh, it was just so cool. Yeah, it feels ragged and obviously out of touch here um, in this, like, otherwise, like, very conventional period drama. But I think we sort of need, like, that interiority uh, within Isabel. I will say, I think one of the things that, like, I felt very disappointed by with this movie is that Isabel is supposed to go through a bunch of these, like, really significant changes after her marriage, and I kind of found it like hard to like sense them there's like a point where like two suitors after she gets married two previous suitors are like oh she's so cold now and I'm like eh, she kind of seems like she was like the way she always was and so like number one I think this probably should have been like a mini series it has like too much scope for even a two and a half hour movie but number two, uh, we get so little like we get so little interiority with Isabel that I really appreciated that moment of just like being really, really, really inside our head. 
Well, and it it's something that Jane has clearly she's done something like it before. I would say specifically in the piano, where we have the scene, uh, we we have just like the flash of the man on fire. That's like a cartoon drawing. Um, mm-hmm. That's like a child's drawing. And also, sweetie. What in sweetie? Which one in sweetie? I don't know. Just like these like weird flourishes of like the tree, like destroying everything in its path. Oh, right. Yeah. And then also I'm thinking of in the cut with the like... Um, the sepia tone. The sepia tone memory of the the legs getting cut off by the ice skate. Um, yeah. Like all of these moments that are out of place and not of the like narrative of the world as a way to like really get at the interiority of these characters and what they're going through or like what their history is or kind of like where their mind is. And it does a really good job of illustrating that in a way that like doesn't feel telegraphy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't want that in something like the power of the dog or the first season of top of the lake. I think like those have a certain like intensity to them that, I don't want to be distracted from. But with something like Portrait of a Lady or Sweetie or An Angel at My Table even. Also, Holy Smoke with the, when he sees uh, Kate Winslet as the goddess. goddess. Yeah. Yeah. I let Campion be Campion, man. Yeah, weird out, girl. (laughs) There is a point where Osman Malkovich's character said something about like, well, I, I think I'm like I'm just like extra virtuous because I've never tried to make any money, and <laughs> uh, another quote I ran into in my research for this is that Campion has said that not only has she been attracted to Osman's in her life, but she said when I was young and falling in love, I did a con job on myself occasionally with very unsuitable people. Which I think, like, adds just this, like, very, like, relatable uh, aura to, like, the whole film. But also, I just kept thinking, like, how many art school bozos did you run into and, like, make yourself fall in love with? Where they were like, oh, I think I'm, like, too good to get a job, actually. Very, very... I, I've i chosen my publisher energy. <laughs> From uh, Angel at My Table. But yeah, it just sort of made me think. She's really tearing apart the men that she has also had in the, her past, it seems. Yes, that's like exactly like the energy. But then also that just like adds to the pathos of Isabel's plight, because this is a world in which women are not allowed to make mistakes. Like you, when you settle for like a man, like that is like basically the rest of your life that you are gambling on. And there's a sort of like sense, I think with a lot of marriage plot driven period dramas, there is a sort of sense that like a woman is a the person who is doing the choosing, but she is basically choosing her warden, right? So like the most you can hope for is that you have like a really, really nice warden. Do you? And <laughs> I do not have a 19th century marriage. Um, really, let's be real. You're Dan's warden. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Dan, who's not listening to this. Nope. So, yeah, it, it definitely just, I don't know, made me really relieved that I don't live in this period of time and I don't have, like, a huge amount of money that I would be a target. I will say, I I understood why Isabel went for Osmond, 
part of which is that he, what she wants initially is to be a more worldly person. And he sort of has these like trappings of worldliness. He lives in Italy and he has all of these knickknacks. And he just sort of like carries himself as someone who is really cosmopolitan. And so I understood why she was into him. I also feel like, and again, I think this goes back to like me sort of wishing this was a miniseries. I think if you had sort of seen that 180 turn a little bit more, it would have been more convincing. I get, I think we get like a little bit of it where uh, when he's so courting her, she's he says something like, uh, like, I think your anchor is beautiful or like, I can't wait to see it or something. And then like once they get married, he's like, stop being so angry. Which again, like, I think felt very, like, modern in that sense. But I just really wish that, like, we could see what made him attractive a little bit more. He has a very sharp tongue, which I really liked. Uh, there's one point where he calls his daughter a little dusty. Um, <laughs> which, woof. And I think uh, one of our favorite lines from the movie was when... He, he's being asked to basically meet her and she, he's like, eh, I know too many dingy people already. I love my dingy friends. <laughs> he has this like fun, sharp, velvety tongue. And yet I just wish like I, we got like one extra scene or something in there where like her complete besottedness to him or of him like made a little bit more sense. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that uh, I would have liked to see a little bit more of the whole the whole journey of their relationship, like the court, like the courtship, falling in love, why we should be attracted to him, but also then kind of seeing the turn play out. Yeah, because we just jump a year forward, and then the turn has already happened at some point in that. Yeah, rather than like seeing him become the villain. Yeah. You want to see that transformation. And I think because his character is, all again, like so similar to his character in Dangerous Liaisons, there's a sort of like, well, like he already knows how to do this role already. Like it's such a John Malkovich-y like typecast role that if he's not bringing something new to the table, you're kind of like, I've already seen this performance before from him and like in a better movie. So why am I watching this? The other thing that I think kind of detracts from the movie's pleasurability is that, like, there were so few supporting characters that you could sort of grab onto to, like, get invested in. Initially, we think that Mary Louise Parker's character might be someone like that. She's sort of this, like, dumpy lady reporter who's very, like, pugnacious and very, like, protective of her friend. And then you immediately find out that, like, number one, Mary Louise Parker cannot play this role because she is way too contemporary. It was, if any role screamed for Melanie Linsky to play, like, that was that role. Um, I found Barbara Hershey's, like, character, the one who sort of, like, sets Isabel up for all of this and then has these really big pangs of regret. Like, I didn't find her particularly sympathetic. Um... I think that Malkovich's daughter was also just like such a nothing. I think the only character who, and then of course all of the suitors, like 
are just these like cardboard cutout men. Viggo Mortensen is beautiful here, but you know, he's just like, he kind of gave me like Kevin Bacon from In the Cut vibes, like basically like mm. a stalker without any depth. Yeah. Um, and They're very white bread, all the guys. I mean, your fave. Your favorite flavor. Richard E. Grant is completely wasted. Uh, Martin Donovan, I thought, was just like a wet rag. Just like offered nothing. He was. I like feel like he's a wet rag milk. in everything that he's in. And like usually when he's in that role, he's good at that. But this did not call for a wet rag. Yeah. It called for more of a... Not Ben Wishaw, but th- that kind of like young romantic Keats ardent. character vibe. Yes, ardent. Yeah. So like I think he came across more creepy than he meant to. There were only two supporting actors I really liked in this. One was Christian Bale, who also had a really under uh written role, but he really brought the Christian Bale intensity that like you wanted. And also we think of Christian Bale so much as like Batman now. But he really kills it every time he's in a period drama, honestly. And the other person I really liked in this was Shelley Duvall because Ugh. she <laughs> She was so perfect. She just played she was just like the comic relief you so desperately needed in this. She was just a kook. Yeah. She was just like a really self important kook. I Got like a bit of like Janice Soprano vibes and just like her complete mm. like narcissistic self delusion. But honestly, like the supporting characters that like I enjoyed the most in this movie probably were all of the dogs because so many of the characters had these like dog analogs. Um, and I was like, yeah, just give me more dogs because none of the characters are actually interesting. And so I just wanted to see, like, Campion matching her actors with, like, the dogs of their choice. One other thing I wanted to note about this is that there's a sort of, like, carryover from previous period films that Campion has done in her absolute love of really ugly period details. This is a very sumptuous film, but she... Campion also loves just, like, the weird details of, like, historical times. Mary Louise Parker's glasses are just so ugly. It reminded me of Holly Hunter's insane hair and the piano. Oh, and Nicole Kidman's insane hair in this. Yes, she has When she starts out with, like, the boobs on her head? (laughs) Yes, it's an incredibly unflattering hairstyle and hair color. And, you know, like, you imagine 90s Nicole Kidman with that glorious, like, Titian red curls. And for her to get this, like, her, for her to be this, like, very beautiful character, but just have this, like, wet poodle-looking fur hair. Yeah. Yeah. Her dog is a wet poodle. <laughs> Let's talk about the ending. So one of the things that uh, Campion changed from the book is that there is supposed to be this, like, very intense ambiguity between, like, whether she goes back to Rome or whether she goes back to Goodwood, uh, the guy played by Viggo Mortensen, who was like, well, like, you know, you can just get divorced and then come marry me. And he kisses her, and then 
I guess, like, you're supposed to feel like she was also into it because she kisses him back. But I think that's just, like, one of those other things where the character just, like, didn't really work for me because he's so creepy and so persistent and won't take no for an answer for so much of the movie. Um, And so... Yeah, I was like, uh, like, why is this guy, like, assaulting her, basically? And then she, like, runs back to her dead cousin's house, and then she sort of seems like she's about to go in, and then she faces the camera, and, like, she faces the outside. And it goes into this, like, really uh, unfortunate slow-mo about, like, what is the decision she's going to make? And it's sort of, like... It ends on a note of ambiguity about whether she's going to go back to Goodwood or not. And I was just like, this doesn't work for me. I don't know. I think it worked for me a little better than you because at least the way that I read it is like, I thought she was into the kiss with Viggo Mortensen and was like excited to rediscover that like young passion yeah. that she doesn't have in her marriage anymore. Yeah. And so she like gets really into the kiss, but then like breaks from it and runs away from him running back to this house that as she gets back to it, we see in the, through the window pane, the bright green room that we felt was much more belonging in an Almodovar film than this film, but the bright green room where she first met Serena, where she first met, the woman who basically led to her doom own down her own doom. And so rather than like go back into that room that reminds her of all of that, she kind of like turns back around to the outside, Mm. kind of like remembering her freedom. At least that's kind of how I read it. Okay. I mean, I'll take that, but But I mean, ending and ambiguous ending ambiguously means that like we can read it however we want. But I want closure. (laughs) I feel like the stakes are just so high that, and like the character is not compellingly drawn enough that I didn't feel really moved by the ambiguity. I think like if the stakes were lower or if this was like a much more detailed character portrait, then it could have worked for me. But you know, I've already talked about all this other stuff already. But it was already a portrait of a lady. Shut up. Never. <laughs> you want to do rankings? Let's do them. Um, I will start. This is this has gotten truly like quite difficult now. I still think the piano is her best work. I'm going to put Holy Smoke in there and then Top of the Lake and then Bright Star. Um, geez. <laughs> I think Portrait of a Lady in the cut, Sweetie, Angel at My Table, and then at the very bottom, Top of the Lake Season 2. All right. That's a good ranking, but this is really tough now. Uh, yeah. There's so many choices. We have two new elements now. Yes. So, I, I mean, obviously, the top of the list is Holy Smoke. Uh. And then the piano. Uh, then Top of the Lake, Season 1. And then Bright Star, we're all in, we're agreement in those at least. Uh, then honestly, I would say Sweetie, followed by Portrait of a Lady. Wow. Then in the cut. Wow. 
then Angel at my table, and then Top of the Lake Season 2. Okay, so we still agree that Top of the Lake Season 2 is the worst thing she's ever done. Yeah, more like Season Poo. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obviously cutting that. No, you're obviously keeping that. Gross. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We're so glad you joined us for this double feature. Our next episode and our last is on Power of the Dog. It'll be out in two weeks or so. And if you'd like to email us, we're at allaboutfilmpod at gmail.com.